Welcome, everyone. This is Donnie Laster, host of Trafficked, produced for Hear Women Talk Radio on the Zeus Network. Welcome, listeners. We have a great and exciting worldwide show today. We're going to travel around the world from Thailand and hear about how counterfeit goods and child labor may be in your product stream. Then we are going to travel to California and hear how volunteers are collaborating with police to give information to start investigations here in the United States. And then we're jumping over to Washington State for a surprise announcement about next week's show. As always, I want to start with a rant or a rave. I think I raved last week, so we need to rant this week. I have just been noticing so many. I'm in Houston, Texas today, and I've just been noticing so many brothels operating openly. Right here, no shame, no hide. We even put... We even put a picture of one of them in a national magazine that has 2 million readers. Put a picture of the front door, the open sign, and their address in the news story about human trafficking. And yet that brothel remains open. So I urge you, in your community, write editorials, call the police, call your elected officials and say, Hey, stop it. We want our community hostile to human traffickers to forced labor and commercial sex, and we want it welcoming and safe for victims. When things like that, where they're openly known to be holding victims of trafficking, are allowed to operate in the open, it just isn't okay. So it's going to be up to you, our listeners, our group, our loyal supporters, to start the, start the discussion. So thank you. That's my rant for the day. I am so honored to introduce to you a colleague of mine, attorney and investigator Ed Kelly. He is literally burning the midnight oil in Thailand. He has been so gracious to stay up late at night. It's midnight there. And join us for our discussion today. He has amazing information that even as much as I've worked in trafficking, I learned quite a bit from him. And uh, I want to just jump right into it. He has amazing stories. Ed, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Daddy. Thank you for having me. Well, I am just um, amazed. You sent your PowerPoint and some speeches that you've given, and we'll make those available in the near future on our social page with your permission. You know, the first thing I want to start with is how did you meet your wife? It's very interesting. It's a great question. Um, it's really what uh, has brought me to this point in my life, um, uh, trying to work as best as I can as a human uh, human rights advocate and, and uh, activist. Um, I met my wife on a case uh, in Thailand involving uh, fake Philip Morris, uh, fake Marlboro cigarettes. There was a, a factory that was on the Cambodian border in the northeast of Thailand pumping out hundreds of thousands of cartons of fake cigarettes uh, each and every week. Uh, came to the attention of Philip Morris, and they hired me to arrange a police raid, uh, uh, bringing out a law enforcement team from Bangkok to this remote rural area in northeast uh, Thailand. Um, I was new to the area and really didn't know much about the, the culture or the, the, the problems confronting brand owners, so this was sort of on-the-job uh, learning experience for me. 
I brought a team of uh, about six or seven police officers from Bangkok, and we went to serve a warrant on this uh, factory. And when I arrived to serve the search warrant, um, there were local police there to interfere with us. And they actually uh, detained myself and, and the commanding police officer from Bangkok and accused us of forging the search warrant. And this so, was right around... So you were arrested while trying to arrest the criminals. That's right. That's right. And, of course, the local police were corrupt, and they were on the payroll of this factory acting as basically paid protection. So uh, we were accused of, of forging the search warrant, and uh, uh, it was uh, very nerve-wracking for me because I had a plane ticket to go back to the U.S. for Thanksgiving. It was right around Thanksgiving of 2001, and uh, we were... Uh, cordoned off in, in, I can't say it was prison, but it was like a really bad one-star hotel. Uh, <laughs> and uh, time started to tick by, a day and two days. And finally, my partner in Bangkok was able to get in touch with a local influential person in this, uh, in this rural area, who was former military, and he sent his daughter to come and negotiate for my release and the release of the, of the commanding officer. And so in walks this uh, 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 very uh, slight and, and uh, in my view, gorgeous young woman. And uh, she starts to argue very forcefully with the leader of this corrupt police team. And all of a sudden, things started to happen. I got my cell phone back. I got my laptop back. And I was uh, able to leave this uh, really lousy hotel. And we were able to proceed with the raid. So to thank this young woman, I... Uh, suggest that I take her out for a dinner date in Bangkok. And uh, three months later, I was engaged, and six months later, I was married. And it's been eight years, and, and uh, she's a big part of my life and a big part of the reason why I stayed in Thailand. So she was your knight in shining armor, huh? That's right. She rescued me at a time when I needed rescuing, and now I feel like I owe. So that's what I'm doing. Well, that's a beautiful story, and uh, kudos to her. I'm so glad she showed up. I'd hate to think uh, that you might still be there. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I saw the movie Midnight Express back in the 70s. The listeners are old enough to remember that. And uh, that's all I could think of during that time. Oh, my goodness. Well, obviously, something wonderful came out of a bad situation. So tell me what's going on in um, in Thailand. You've worked on some really interesting cases, and I want to really uh, get into how counterfeit goods are so related to child labor and trafficking. The, the, the reason that I highlighted that particular case is uh, when we went in to serve the search warrant, I mean, I can remember to this day uh, seeing and, and, and smelling uh, these sights and, and smells in, in this dank factory. We went in, we found 10 initiated chains that had been smuggled in uh, illegally. Their passports had been taken. They didn't even know that they were in Thailand, and they were basically slave labor working to churn out these cigarettes, and it was my first exposure to the fact that slavery, the slave trade, was still alive and well. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, we were taught that the slave trade was something that occurred in, in the 17 and 1800s, and and, uh, and that Lincoln, Abe Lincoln, had uh, solved that problem with the Emancipation Proclamation. And so, so in 2001, uh, in 2001, then you had your world kind of rocked a little. It it, it really was a wake up call. Um, when we uh, went in to do the raid, according to Thai law, literally, 
those who are found to be making the counterfeit goods are to be arrested and charged with the offense. And so the, the, even the police, who I felt were very professional from Bedcock, uh, were forced to apply this law literally, and they arrested the, the, the workers who, who were themselves victims. They were trafficked labor. And I was trying to explain, what these guys are the victims. What are you doing arresting them? Arrest the owner of the factory. Don't, don't arrest the workers. And that took a yeah, long time. I have time that conversation even today. <laughs> that's kind yeah. of funny. Um, but that's the first step is is to get this stopped. The awareness that this happens is the first thing that, that you have to start with every time. Well, it led me to do a lot of research in the area. And, and my research findings really shocked me. Um, you know, it took four centuries for traders in America to traffic African slaves from Western Africa into the U.S. to support the agricultural economy, you know, from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Um, the statistics that I've read suggest that there were 8 million African slaves trafficked into the U.S. over four centuries. Well, to compare, from 1990 until the present date, just in a matter of 20 years, more than 32 million people have been trafficked into or through Southeast Asia either as a transit point or source point or a destination point for human trafficking. So in 20 years, 32 million people have been enslaved, and that is just shocking. Those numbers are mind-boggling. The slave trade, believe me, is alive and well. And yet our social conscience of it across the board is very limited. Um, as you just said, I spend a lot of my day convincing um, people that it exists. It's getting better it's not as hard now, but as you said, with the, the people that were arrested, the first problem was was getting people to understand what they were seeing. And um, yeah, I, I think most people, when they when they think of Thailand, they think of uh, you know we have this reputation, justified reputation for uh, abusive commercial sex practices. And uh, there's no doubt that young Thai women, young Cambodian women, young women from the region are trafficked in to or from Thailand for commercial sex. But when you look at the statistics, you know, commercial sex gets the headlines because it's a very, it's a, it's a horrific and, and compelling issue. Uh, but it's really, overall, it's only 11% of all uh, human trafficking cases involve commercial sex trade. So I'm, uh, it, that's not to diminish the importance of, of uh, trying to uh, uh, suppress and, and stop uh, the abuse of young women and, and, and the uh, trickery that's involved, the deceit that's involved that uh, lures them into this kind of trade. But the overwhelming majority of cases that I see in, in Southeast Asia involve forced labor, slave labor, indentured labor, uh, trickery and deceit, where I can tell you I have personal experience. Uh, my wife and I have a home in, in her village in uh, northeast Thailand, a, a province called Buriram, Thailand, on the Cambodian border. And I've seen firsthand these touts, these uh, brokers come into the village and uh, put on kind of a, a job fair where they uh, try to recruit young men, young boys, into what they say will be a job in the construction industry, sometimes in Bangkok or sometimes abroad. And they try to recruit young women for what they say will be domestic labor, uh, serving as a maid or as a, as a server in, in uh, wealthy persons' homes. And... Uh, they often charge the families of these uh, young people uh, upwards of $5,000, $10,000, $15,000 for the privilege of, of having these jobs brokered, only to find out later 
that when the kids are, are brought in, they have to give up their passports and their ID cards. And for a young girl, that means their fate is going to be usually cast in the uh, commercial sex business. Or for young boys, they are often trafficked into these black market gangs that, in my experience, often trade in uh, illicit goods, fake goods, counterfeit goods, or pirate goods. Ed, when we, we have to take a break now. When we want to come back, I'd like uh, to pick up the topic there with the counterfeit goods and let people know that the goods touching us here are directly related to the labor you just spoke about. This uh, We'll be right back on Hear Women Talk Radio. Welcome back to Trafficked with host Dottie Laster, produced for Hear Women Talk Radio by the Zeus Network. Okay, we were just discussing with Ed Kelly, who is staying up late at night in Thailand and joining us via Skype. He was talking about how he met his wife, um, how she uh, got him out of jail and, and was his knight in shining armor, and now they're married. He works to uh, combat trafficking and illegal counterfeit goods that are produced in Thailand. Now, Ed, let's pick up where we ta- left off. You were going to talk about the goods that are trafficked and counterfeited. Go from there. Yeah, a lot of people think of uh, you know handbags and, and sort of, when, when you know, the word counterfeit goods or fake goods is brought up, and uh, I, I, that's obviously correct. But this, the, the problem of counterfeiting is a much, much broader and more insidious problem that affects uh, all of us in, in, uh, in the following ways. Of course, there's an impact on, on the owners of brands. I, I work for companies like Adidas and, and Oakley and Ray-Ban and uh, uh, Pfizer and Sanofi Aventis, and of course. All the fake goods that are are, are sold under uh, uh, under those brands uh, cause a, a a loss in sales or or a, you know a hit to their bottom line. But uh, there are actually social impacts that are that are much broader, much wider uh, that people don't uh, uh, immediately see uh, in, in connection with this with, with this issue. Um, I, I've worked cases, for example, in Thailand involving uh, the the counterfeiting of Automobile parts, uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Ferrari, uh, uh, Honda, Toyota, uh, Ford. Um, if, if it's made by man, it can be faked and it can be copied here. And, and uh, we've, we've broken open cases involving uh, huge factories making $25 million, $50 million a year um, trading in fake automobile parts. And you, you have to wonder how can... I saw some of those pictures, Ed, and you really can't tell the difference. I mean, that Mercedes emblem was was just like a Mercedes emblem. The, the key is you can't do this by looking. But uh, when it comes time to apply the brakes, you know, when you're going to avoid a traffic accident or hitting a pedestrian, that's when you'll see the difference because those brakes will fail and uh, uh, you'll have uh, really nasty consequences. Um, in the case that uh, I shared with you on the PowerPoint, that was a case in Western Thailand where this factory was able to make these enormous profits. You have to think, well, how can they make so, so much money? The only answer is they don't have to pay the same labor costs. The, the way that they squeeze profit out of these operations is they keep their costs very low by working with exploited uh, traffic, slave, or indentured labor. And in this case, they were using Burmese labor. And uh, uh, that's the that's the easiest way for them to 
uh, achieve these enormous profits. Now, Adam Smith, the, the, the author of the, the Bible of Capitalism, The Wealth of Nations in 1776, actually predicted this problem. And he said, you know, capitalism is a great idea, but only if it's restrained by morality, decency, and the rule of law. In developing countries, what you see is uh, capitalism practiced on steroids. It's capitalism, but it's capitalism without reference to morality, decency, or the rule of law. And the, the object is profit, pure and simple, by any means necessary. And if that means wearing out uh, labor, uh, using them up, throwing them away, uh, then that's what they'll do. The workers, the labor pool for this type of are not human beings to the traffickers. They're cogs in a machine uh, just to be worn out and thrown away. I had a similar so, Ed, case... Let me let me summarize just to, to, and we also have a chat question I want to put into this. So you're talking about products that appear to be legitimate. They make it, do they make it to the U.S., those breaks, the cigarettes, uh, the things that you've listed? They sure do. Uh, we've had cases involving airplane parts, Boeing airplane parts. Now, I, wow. I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm, a, I'm a nervous enough flyer as it is, and I spent a lot of my life <laughs> In airplanes, and I don't want to be on an airplane where there's fake airplane parts. So, they, so you if, literally, if you, are on the, you're literally on the front lines of, of combating that and saving us from these products that could lead to public disaster and public uh, injury. I, I, I caution people all the time about uh, being very careful when they're making purchasing decisions. If, if a deal looks too good to be true, then it must there must be something wrong. You know, people buy. For example, medicines on the internet, and uh, uh, who knows where those medicines have come from? More, more often than not, those medicines are fake, and uh, could be misdosed or could be even be poison. Um, you, you really take your chances when you're buying outside of these authorized chains. Uh, now, everyone loves a bargain. They go to flea markets and, and uh, they see something marked down, you know, 10 percent of, of, of the. Um, I use the rule of three P's. Price, package, and place. If the price is too good to be true, there's something wrong. If the place where it's being sold is uh, is is not you know in the authorized channel, there's something wrong. Package. Oftentimes these things are sold out of you know paper bags or, or plastic bags. They're not in the original packaging. There's something wrong. Um, people need to be alert because, uh, as I said, if, if it could be made by man, it could be faked. And uh, uh, this this is an enormous. Six hundred million, six hundred billion dollar a year trade, according to uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So I have some questions, some chat questions here. I'm going to put them together and let you answer them. The there one question: Do the cigarettes make it to Los Angeles? Um, counterfeit cigarettes, and also, um, are they related to organized crime groups? There's no question that the cigarettes appear in virtually uh, any developed market. The, 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 the way that these uh, uh, traders make money is to uh, produce the goods in poor countries where there are labor pools that can be exploited and then sell them in countries where there's a premium uh, for purchase. And, and there's no place, to my knowledge, that's more expensive uh, for, for the cigarette market than in the U.S. So... Uh, this is also a way for them to evade taxes and, uh, and evade uh, uh, customs and excise uh, duty. So uh, the profit on a pack of cigarettes is, 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 or a carton of cigarettes can often be the, the same profit margin that a trader might see uh, trading in, in narcotics. 
if the guy gets caught with narcotics, he's going to jail. Guy gets caught with a fake carton of, uh, fake carton of cigarettes, often just pays a fine and is free to uh, trade again uh, going in the future. Now, the, the use of uh, networks by organized crime is, is, is very clear, very definite. Uh, it's not something, though, like uh, where you have a, a Sopranos-type structure. It's a very flat, uh, non-hierarchical structure where you have people who are present in different countries with white-collar skill sets. People who are lawyers or accountants or logistics people, uh, collections, uh, human resources, uh, protection, uh, those types of skill sets where uh, people know how to get goods from point A to point B to point C without attracting the attention of law enforcement and without att attracting the attention of the tax man. And that's the new organized criminal model. Um, it's described very well in a book called The Starfish and the Spider by Ori Brafman. Uh, where it talks about how a starfish network is a very flat network without any kind of centralized control. And if you chop off the arm of a starfish, it can grow it back. Or if you cut a starfish in half, you might have two starfishes. And that's exactly the type of model you see with organized trading in illicit goods. Um, let's move forward now and talk about CISHA. Can you explain what CISHA does and how people can get information about that organization? CISHA is an organization, a, a charitable foundation that operates in Cambodia and Thailand that I had the privilege of, uh, of uh, being involved in the formation of the organization with a former Australian police officer named Steve Moorish. Uh, Steve is one of these uh, amazing, inspiring people. Um, he's a, a force of nature. Um, he was on holiday in Cambodia and uh, uh, he spotted something odd with a, a brothel where there were young children being offered to adults uh, for sex. And this infuriated him to the point where he considered uh, getting involved with self-help. He wasn't going to go to the law enforcement uh, units locally. He didn't trust them. He was going to go into the brothel and carry the kids out on his shoulders and beat the crap out of uh, the customers. And, and you know, quite I warned a normal him that response, he was right? I admire the directness, but uh, we both uh, talked about it. We, we decided that it would be much better to channel that fury into uh, a proper organization that could have more of a macro impact on the problem in Camp Island. And so that's the genesis for the foundation of, of CISHA. CISHA uh, works very closely with law enforcement um, doing undercover uh, operations, going into brothels, uh, uh, recruiting informants, developing a network of informants, and rescuing young children, getting them out of these horrific conditions. Sometimes the children are sold into these brothels by their parents, which is just horrifying. You can imagine the psychological scars that uh, a situation like that is going to leave behind. And we get these kids into training. We get them into uh, psychological care, aftercare, uh, uh, rape crisis uh, uh, type of care and uh, try to give them a second chance at life. It's, uh, it's uh, inspiring work. It's, uh, it's work that needs to be done here. It needs uh, much more financial support, but uh, uh, we do what we can with what we have, and, and uh, in three years we've, we've come a long way. 
Well, that is so interesting, and our listeners can reach Sisha at www.sisha.org. Also, we will put a link to Sisha and Ed on our um, trafficked social group. So if you haven't joined that group, please do go to Hear Women Talk, click on Groups, and look for Trafficked, and join. And you can continue this discussion with Ed, not only today, but into the future. I want to thank you so much, Ed, for being with us. We have learned so much, and I believe we are going to have you back soon. Well, it's been a great privilege. Thank you for the time. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And, and Daddy, you know I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, you've trained a lot of the uh, officials that I've uh, had the privilege of meeting and working with from the Department of Justice, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. We're going to a break now, and when we come back, we will meet Mike Mastin of Project Exodus, and we have a surprise announcement at the end of the show. So be back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back, everyone. This is Dottie Laster on Trafficked for Hear Women Talk Radio, produced by the Zeus Network. Please uh, log in to Hear Women Talk at hearwomentalk.com or call in at 646-652-2071. Chat, listen, and join the discussion. Now, we have left Thailand in such an amazing interview with Ed Kelly of the nonprofit organization SISHA, talking about trade and illegal goods and how they may affect you and and organized crime and public safety issues involved in that, as well as the exploitation of child and forced labor. Now we're traveling around the globe, and we're heading to Los Angeles, California, where we are going to be introduced to Mike Mastin of Project Exodus. I met this amazing young man years ago when I was speaking about human trafficking in Los Angeles and Orange County, California. He was a student at Pepperdine University then, and he had a drive and a, a great plan about how to combat this issue. Years later, now he's a graduate. Um, he has his own organization and is contributing an amazing amount um, to combating this crime. Mike, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. And unlike Ed, at least we got to you during business hours. Our our previous guest had to stay up till midnight. So um, hopefully we'll catch you uh, in a in your work mode today. Um, tell us about Project Exodus. Uh, give me a bit about how it got formed, and talk about your amazing volunteers. Sure. Well, um, Project Exodus, kind of in a nutshell, is a uh, we're a Christian anti-human trafficking organization. We're a nonprofit, and the premise of Project Exodus is basically the idea that um, God can use anybody to seek justice. That's kind of the cornerstone of our organization, and the premise, what we do actually, is anti-human trafficking investigations. We try to find uh, human trafficking locations within the United States. And we basically gather intelligence on these organizations, build up reports uh, documenting the crimes as they're taking place, and then we compile these reports and give them to law enforcement and help lead law enforcement into, uh, you know, taking down these trafficking locations. And I guess the uh, the story behind Project Exodus came, as you were kind of saying, uh, going back into college. You know, I, when I was in college learned about human trafficking and 
it was one of those moments in life where it was truly a heartbreaking thing. It was, um, my heart was shattered as soon as I learned that this crime was taking place and devoted everything we had at that moment or I had to trying to make a difference in this issue. And from a college point of view, that was mainly from an awareness uh, standpoint. So we would organize awareness events. I have to chime in, Mike, because uh, I went to an event that you helped host. And as a student, you did such an amazing job. Um, It was one of the most well-run events I've been to. And as a speaker, I felt completely welcome. And I think that's a key to part of your success is you didn't do this halfway. You went all the way into it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for that compliment. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were thrilled. You know, actually, Dottie was at uh, the very first anti-human trafficking event ever at Pepperdine University. And um, it's really, it's kind of one of those cool things. We can now look at the university today, and uh, it is a university that's just absolutely dedicated to seeking justice. And um, I think in no part to that team that worked that year that you came. So it's a pretty amazing thing. But, um you know, one of the things that we ran into was you, you get to a point in your life where you can only learn so much about an issue, you know. And with human trafficking, uh, that, that first year that we got involved, uh, just kind of dove right into it. And we learned as much as possible. I learned as much as possible about the issue. We raised awareness. You know, we got, we got the meetings. We got the experts in the talk about it. We raised money. And then we got to this point where we're like, okay, we've raised the awareness, you know, Pepperdine's pumped up, we're ready for this, um, now what? And we started asking around, and nobody had the follow-up answer. There was no, um, well, now, now that you've raised the awareness, now you can do this to try and free some slaves. It was, oh, sorry, you should go raise more awareness and raise more money and pray some more. But actually, there's nothing you can actually do to make a tangible difference in this uh, this battle except for supporting other organizations. And quite frankly, I just didn't agree with that. Um, we had been doing outreaches in L.A. We had been doing prayer walks in L.A. We had been running into, kind of bumping into, you know, uh, karaoke bars, massage parlors, places, you know, bars where we knew prostitution was taking place. And we knew because of all everything we did know about human trafficking that undoubtedly trafficking was going to be taking place. And we knew that there was something we could do. And that was the premise for Project Exodus. It was the idea that, you know what, you don't have to be a high-ranking official to try and make a difference in the slave trade. Uh, God can use you where you are. You know, Mike, it was kind of funny. I was in L.A. about a year or two ago, and um, I remember you calling me. We were there filming, and, of course, I called Mike when I got into town. And... uh, I said, hey, we need some cases. Um, we're going to work with these investigators. And you came to me and brought all these really well-documented cases. And then I remember one thing you said, because, Dottie, is it real? I mean, it wasn't that hard. We found them so easily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess one of the things is, you know, when we started doing this work, I think intellectually we knew everything we had to do. And, uh, you know, we knew the techniques that were necessary and we developed those and we went out and we started doing it and we started finding it all over the place, you know. And I guess what was um, was almost expected was that right off the bat, um, you know, there, there would at least be, you know, a lag period between the time we started getting active and so we actually found anything that was substantial. 
And, um, you know, it was, it was one of those disturbing moments where, you know, what we thought was commonplace among brothels here, um, we talked to you and you're like, that's human trafficking. And we're like, oh, well, there you go. You know, that wasn't too hard. Uh, because it is, it is all over the place. And, you know, um, actually going back to that exact same time, you know, we were working with a, uh, a former trafficking victim who had been freed. And, um, I remember you and I sat down and we were talking with her and, um, we were learning about the, uh, the experiences she had gone through and the way that her pimp had abused her and things like that. And, um, I remember, I tell the story often, I remember I at one point, I think either it was me or you referred to her as a human trafficking victim, and she started to argue with us. She's like, "Oh, I'm not a human trafficking victim." She and did. We were like, well, and we're like, "Well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, well, did this man beat you if you did not, you know, turn out so many sex tricks every, you know, turn out so many tricks every, uh, you know, day? Uh, yes." Did he lie to you about how he was going to take care of you and what he was going to do for you and, you know, so on, so on? Yes. And uh, did he threaten you if he didn't do this, that he was going to kill you or kill your family or things like that? She's like, yes. And I was like, then, hey, you're a victim of human trafficking. And I just I just remember that moment. And then it was like once that switch went off in her head, we asked her, like, well, based off of that, uh, your experience, how many of the girls on the street do you think are victims of human trafficking? And I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks at the time. She's like, Oh gosh, easily like 90%. (laughs) Exactly. And it was one of those things where even up until that point, I had been working in anti-trafficking that whole time. I think there's a, there's a fundamental philosophical debate right now uh, within the abolitionist community of, you know, sex workers versus forced prostitutes, you know, and it's, it's really, it's one of these challenges. And depending on who you talk to, you typically, if you talk to law enforcement, uh, they are very much under the opinion that there are willing sex workers out there, uh, that are doing this of their own free will. And there's maybe a small percentage that is forced, but then you talk to certain prostitutes and they're like, yeah, screw the sex workers. There are, you know, tons of slaves out there. And I think that was one of the challenges. I think we were going into the, our investigations initially with the mindset that there must be just a s- small percentage of women being trafficked. And um, I think just the more we do this, the more we realize, like, it is way more prevalent than we, we even thought it was when we started. Tell me about your volunteers and a little bit about um, some of the cases that you've been able to, uh, to identify. Sure. Well, and, and I'll say this right off the bat, because um, we don't want to mislead anybody. We are we are definitely a young organization. We have been, uh, I've been doing work for a number of years, as you are aware, but we have actually, Project Exodus has only been around since, uh, we've been kind of public since about September of last year, or August, September. So we're about one year old right now. So happy birthday to us. Um, okay. But I know it's but it's been an interesting year, to say the least. But uh, <laughs> anyways, um, uh, yeah, our volunteers in the cases. First off, our volunteers are, we have, you know, Project Exodus has kind of a unique standpoint, like we said, in that we uh, we believe anybody can seek justice. So God can use anybody uh, to find victims of trafficking. They don't have to be in the FBI. They don't have to be in the LAPD. They don't have to be a trained social worker. 
Um, there Hold are things that, that we have to... Hold that thought, Mike. We're going to break right now, and I want to come back. Oh, okay. And uh, so what he has said is that you don't have to have a title to help someone in need. We'll be right back on Hear Women Talk Radio with Trafficked. Welcome back to Trafficked on Hear Women Talk Radio, produced by Zeus Network. Um, We have been speaking with Mike Maston, and he has talked about how he went from college student to having his own nonprofit, to actually finding victims of trafficking and learning from them how many there were out there. Mike, I'm sorry, our time is really short, but what I really think is important is to explain how people can get involved with your group and um, what your hopes are for Project Exodus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, first off, most importantly, if people want to get involved, um, I'm going to send them to our website, www.project-exodus.org. You can Google us as well. We'll come up. And um, if you go to the website, you look around, on the very front page, you'll see all these different ways you can get involved, whether it's from donating to our organization to organizing prayer walks to actually organizing these outreach teams to go out and find trafficking locations. That's... um, that's really the big thing. But what we need is we do need volunteers. We need uh, leaders. We need people who are willing to step up and uh, join us in this fight. So the call is going out right now. This is the recruitment call. Please call in. Please contact us. Email us. Let us know. Um, we'd love to get you involved. Um, for those in the L.A. area, we say just contact us. We'll, we'll train you on how to go out and identify trafficking locations, and you can work with our teams to get out there and hopefully make a difference because uh, the truth of the matter is uh, the number of traffickers and victims far outnumber the number of abolitionists who are trying to save them right now. So we need as many people as possible. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And I want to just recap. Um, You know, we had talked about the idea that you don't have to work for the FBI and you don't have to be an elected official. What we need is anyone with a desire to combat human trafficking and they can join your group and make a difference in people's lives. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, you have a lot of people out there these days saying you can be a modern day abolitionist and they're, um, it's true. It really is, and it's not just some tongue-in-cheek thing that we say. Um, if you have a skill, uh, very often I have people just call me up from all like parts of the world. I had somebody contact me the other day from Australia saying, hey, I'm studying about this issue. Uh, I'm concerned about this. What can I do? And you know what? We'll Skype, and we're going to brainstorm how somebody in Australia can help out uh, Project Exodus in Los Angeles. You know, we've had everything from people doing prayer walks, showing movies, you know, actually doing outreaches where they give information about human trafficking out in the community and how to report it to somebody actually making hair bows uh, to raise money for our organization out in Louisiana. So, um, you know, whether it's as an investigator or as a prayer warrior, as a fundraiser, whatever, uh, we could use your help. So we definitely encourage it. It doesn't matter who you are, what age you are. 
Well, thank you so much, Mike, and uh, I've enjoyed having you today. And, uh, you know, you've just always earned inspiration. You started as a student. You got knowledge. You gained awareness. You moved into an organization. And you are one of the most action-oriented folks in this movement. And keep up the good work, and we will talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me on. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Well, as promised, listeners, I kept uh, saying that we had a guest, a announcement, a surprise, all of those I've been chatting and emailing about. Well, as always, you can trust Dottie. She delivers. Um, our guest is Frank Dukes. He has Skyped in from the state of Washington. And he and I have teamed up for some great things, and I just want to tease you because he is going to be our sole guest on next week's show. Frank Dukes is the subject of the movie Bloodsport. If any of you saw Bloodsport, he was portrayed by Jean-Claude Van Damme, and the movie is about him. But there's more to him than the movie, and I really want to get into uh, to that. But first of all, let me introduce Frank. Hi, Frank. How you doing, Dottie? Thank you so much for braving Skype and working through our technical issues and being here live with us. Well, uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, uh, especially after finding out there's 47 people posing as me on uh, around the world there. <laughs> <laughs> that did create a little bit of havoc during the break. <laughs> so. so, well, Frank, you and I have been on the phone lately. We've got a great fin- fin- friend, Bill Hearn, that's been talking to us. And, um, yes. Let's just give them a hint of what they're going to see next week and what we're launching as a project. Oh, de- definitely. Um, do you want to take the lead here, Dottie? I- well, um, next week we are going to have you on as our sole guest. Um, instead of two, we're going to have you on for the whole hour. And I really want to get into some of the experiences you um were a part of when you were um, traveling around the world, and um, what's really interesting is what you did in the United States. Uh, it, it'll be my pleasure. And for those who don't know, I, uh, there's a book on me called The Secret Man. It was published by HarperCollins in 1996. It documents how I was a covert operative, and uh, as an operative, I had to, the, the distinct, um, you know, I, I want to say pleasure, but I had the distinct ability to have certain insights into the abuses involving trafficking that was taking place throughout the world and still continues to today, and I'm happy to uh, to talk about it. Especially, 90 seconds. Especially when it comes to uh, issues of child exploitation, something that uh, uh, I think is in need of addressing. And uh, you told me that you also had actually uh, followed a case involving a U.S. citizen taken out of the country. So we want to touch on that. And then next week we're going to announce um, a project, a tour that we're putting together. So I hope everyone will tune in. Um, this will be an amazing show. And, uh, again, I want to thank you for helping us on this issue. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dottie. I mean, I've been involved in anti trafficking issues all my life and I think it's wonderful what you're doing and bringing attention to it uh, it's it's really a, a crying shame that uh, it's not getting the proper attention it really deserves and so many police departments are so ill-equipped in how to deal with it and it's really up to the individuals us as a society to really kind of protect ourselves and protect those who cannot protect themselves 
Well, thank you so much, Frank. And to all our listeners, again, next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Tune in, chat in, call in, dial in, whatever it takes. We want you there. Frank will be on the chat lines with you. You can chat questions. You can continue the discussion before and after this um, amazing radio show next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. Well, thank you for today. It's been an amazing day. We've traveled from Thailand to California to Washington State. Our chat room is lit up. I see you all making valuable connections. And I look forward to next week where we start again. Traffic. This is Dottie Laster on Hear Women Talk Radio, produced by Zeus Networks. I'm on Zeus Radio for hearwomentalk.com.